The great ship went down after striking an iceberg. Never a trace was found. That mystery was explained today. Scientists in a miniature submarine made the discovery early this morning. Mark Gage reports. The Titanic sank on April 15, 1912. From that day on, scientists and treasure hunters have scoured the North Atlantic looking for the ship. But no one ever found even a trace of the massive 880-foot steel hull. Until today, at 2 o'clock this morning, Dr. Robert Ballard, leading a scientific expedition on board the research ship NOR, found the wreckage two and a half miles below. We came on it uh, early this morning. Uh, it just bang. There it was, uh, right on top of it. We went right through the whole uh, uh, debris field uh, with a rather dicey uh, uh, 20 minutes. The British-owned passenger ship was the biggest and most luxurious of its time. It carried the cream of North American society. It was also fast, but that proved to be a major factor in the ship's destruction. The captain ignored warnings that he was sailing straight into a field of icebergs. The ship was traveling at full speed, 25 knots. Then about 400 miles off Newfoundland, after only five days at sea, the Titanic hit an iceberg. It tore a 300-foot gash in her side. The mighty ship went down in less than three hours. More than 1,500 people died, only 713 survived. Today, they found the wreckage. The conclusion, we went smack dab over a gorgeous boiler. I mean, just straight out of all the books. Uh, and there's a, it's just a huge area. So we uh, decided that we would uh, pull up and get, uh, get above it all. There are 47 people on this latest expedition, scientists and technicians from all over the world. The research ship NOR found the Titanic in pieces. A field of debris 500 meters long and 300 meters wide lies on the ocean floor. But researchers say the real work begins now. At this point, they don't know what state or position the bulk of the ship is in. Our initial uh, reaction was excitement, uh, then a coming down off of that to realize that we had found a ship where 1,500 people had died. A lot of us who had researched it uh, for so many years, uh, the Titanic uh, has taken on more than a shipwreck. It's a, it was a true uh, a disaster, and to finally uh, put those souls to rest was a, a, very, uh, a very nice feeling. The ship's vaults are believed to contain millions of dollars worth of gold, diamonds, and other precious jewels. But the people who found her have no intention of raising the ship. They intend to ask the United Nations to declare it an underwater memorial. Search organizers consider the discovery of the Titanic the biggest find of the century. It'll take months, perhaps even years, before the exploration team completes their underwater investigations. Over the next few days, there'll be pictures of the Titanic from the ocean floor. A glimpse of the past as she finally surrenders her secrets from a watery grave. Mark Gage, CTV News, St. John's. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. There is no more famous shipwreck in the world, and the discovery of the Titanic in the Atlantic off the coast of Canada has been the dream of countless deep-sea explorers. Well, thanks to an American-French team, it is no longer a dream. Here's ABC's Bill Blakemore. Seventy-three years ago in April of 1912, when the Titanic set out on its maiden voyage from England to America, it was the largest ship yet built, 882 feet long, and, its owners bragged, unsinkable. 
but on April 12th it hit an iceberg in the dark and quickly disappeared, until this week when a French-American team pinpointed it on the ocean floor. The Titanic was found some 370 miles south of Newfoundland, two and a half miles down where there's no light, no plant life, and freezing temperatures. Sonar from a French research ship first located the wreckage. Then to confirm it was the Titanic, an American Navy ship sent down a new unmanned diving sled called the Argo, outfitted with computerized cameras to a 500-meter-long field of debris on the ocean floor. It immediately spotted the Titanic's distinctive boiler. In only two and a half hours it disappeared, along with 1,500 people. Only 700 lived. Survivor Ruth Blanchard was a 12-year-old watching from one of the lifeboats. The uh, lights were all on, but the rows, there were five or six rows, uh, where people were standing looking over the rail, you know, and wondering, I suppose they were waiting for somebody to take them off, to rescue them. It became instant legend. Some said there was a fortune in jewels on board, along with high society names like Astor, Guggenheim, and Strauss. Whether it will ever be even possible to now raise the Titanic is not clear, but survivor Eva Hart, who was seven, traveling with both her parents, would not favor it. I say because to me it's my father's grave, and I, I don't want, I don't ever want to see the Titanic again. I don't, I don't want to see it raised. Whether or not it ever can be raised, lawyers are now trying to determine who owns the sunken ship and any valuables on board. Bill Blakemore, ABC News, New York. This afternoon, I talked by ship-to-shore radio with the chief scientist on the Titanic expedition, Dr. Robert Ballard. Have you actually seen the hull of the Titanic standing upright as it's been reported over? That's correct. That's correct. It's sitting upright on the bottom. What kind of condition does the Titanic look in over? It appears to be in uh, superb condition. Uh, one would expect that given the fact that we're uh, working in extremely deep water. It's uh, ice cold and in total darkness, so it's, a, it's an environment of high, high preservation. Over. Do you have any plans to try raising the Titanic? Over. Oh, I think that would be ridiculous. Uh, no, absolutely not. In fact, I would like to... Uh, to go and try to ensure that uh, desecration of this uh, memorial to 1,500 souls is left the way it is. Over. Is there any possibility you might try to raise the cargo? Over. Uh, no, I can't believe uh, that it would be economically uh, wise uh, to do such a thing, and uh, I don't uh, want to do that personally at all, and I don't want to contribute to any such undertaking. Over as far as you're concerned, the Titanic should remain where she went down. Over. Yes. Uh, it's uh, like trying to raise the Arizona and Pearl Harbor. Uh, I see absolutely nothing to be gained. And uh, I think that uh, a, a ship like this, uh, being a sailor of many years, uh, you ought to leave it where it is. It's, uh, it's a, the souls have now been located and uh, they're fine where they are. Until this photograph, for 73 years, what happened when the Titanic hit bottom had been a mystery. Here, her bow, as it looks today. The railing around it, along which millionaires strolled on its maiden voyage, is still intact. But below, there is a giant bulge where the double steel hull, considered impregnable by its designers, buckled and broke when the ship plunged into the total darkness of a deep ocean canyon. From his research ship, 
two and a half miles above the liner, the expedition's director, Robert Ballard, described the images historians have waited nearly three quarters of a century to see. The bow sort of took all the beatings, all the damage that was done to the bow was in the under part of the bow, but the iceberg hit it. The length that we're looking at is a good uh, 30 to 50 feet. The remote-controlled robot sub, with its cameras aboard, then moved from the side of the Titanic up to directly above the ship, and more pictures. You're looking straight down. You're seeing the very tip of the uh, Titanic's bow, and a little mass that's coming up towards you is the uh, mass where they put a little flag. And the boilers, each the size of a two-car garage by the side of the wreck. Ballard is now sure what happened when the Titanic hit bottom. No doubt about the boilers roared through the bow. When the ship went vertical and the boilers broke loose, took out everything in their way. Uh, we're still searching for the stern. Uh, we can't find it. It does appear to be disconnected. The search for the rest of the Titanic can continue only until week's end when the research ship leaves for home port ahead of the North Atlantic winter storms. Terry Drinkwater, CBS News, St. John's, Newfoundland. Hey, this is Matt Schrader from Blockbuster. You're listening to some of the archival news reports of the finding of the Titanic in September 1985. The breakthroughs from this discovery set in motion several things that years later will deeply inspire James Cameron, who was just then about to cross the Atlantic himself on the way to go direct his next film, Aliens, in London. This bonus episode contains several of those original news reports that confirmed how the ship sank and the chaos over who has the right to the millions of dollars of valuables that sank with it, a question James would explore in his film A Decade Later with Bill Paxton as the deep-sea ocean explorer like Dr. Robert Ballard. We'll return with some news reports that interviewed some remaining survivors of the Titanic and some clips from a 1986 documentary that featured Dr. Robert Ballard right after this. The Titanic, grand, powerful, confident, and soon to be two and a half miles under the sea. But it has floated in the world's imagination for 73 years. The Titanic was the first liner and the last liner anyone ever called unsinkable. They just could not believe that this magnificent ship, which was the most magnificent ship in this day, could actually sink completely. Everyone on board wasn't so sure. There were exceptions. You see, my mother used to go to bed in that ship because she had this premonition um, solely based on the fact that she said that to declare a vessel unsinkable was flying in the face of God. If the Titanic were around today, it would be doing package tours to the Caribbean. The world that went down that starry night featured a jet set that sailed the seas, gentlemen who dressed for dinner and offered women and children their places in the lifeboats. Imagine. There have been other disasters. The sinking of the Titanic was the granddaddy of them all. It was a preview of coming attractions. In a way, it was, um, it was a premonition of the First World War. It was a sign that an era was coming to an end. Uh, and it uh, made people aware of the consequences of uh, excessive confidence. The Titanic taught a civilization that it's a dangerous world we live in, that there are icebergs lurking in the night. It brought many fears to the surface. But what about the Titanic itself? With 1,500 souls down there, I would agree we should be left where she is. Look at it, dream about it, but don't touch. The Titanic was the ship that sailed blithely off into the night and was never seen again until this week.
Bob Simon, CBS News. One of the scientists on board the research ship which found her said today, it is so nice to see it, like finding an old friend. The discovery has also raised a whole range of questions, and we begin with Bill Blakemore. A thousand miles east of New York, scientists aboard the U.S. Navy research ship are now looking at large sections of the mass grave called the RMS Titanic. The steel-plated bow picked out by strobe lights in the icy water more than two miles down. The bow railings at which passengers stood trying to decide not whether to face death, but how. A ghostly window looking straight out from the bridge where Captain Smith's officers finally saw the iceberg too late. The bow section shows definite signs of damage from the iceberg, from hitting bottom, from the crushing pressures at this depth. Final mysteries of the Titanic are just beginning to come into view. Next, the scientists hope to produce pictures of the stern section. Latest radio reports from the ship describe cases of wine bottles and totally undamaged dinner plates. Scientists at the viewing screens in the research ship's control room are lost in the details of a silent ship which sank with 1,500 people 73 years ago. Bill Blakemore, ABC News, New York. For 73 years, no one has given much thought to who owns the wreck of the Titanic, but Tom Fenton in London tonight reports all that has changed. It was assumed the Titanic would never be seen again when the great ship went down on its maiden voyage in 1912, but the possibility of raising it is now being considered. Anything is possible if you throw enough money at it. Before that happens, they'll have to settle the question of who owns the Titanic now. Today, the Commercial Union Insurance Company of London dug out its files for 1912. It paid the original owners, White Star Lines, $5 million for the loss, but it doesn't own the wreck and doesn't know who does. So it could well be that it doesn't belong to anybody. The British shipping company Cunard says it didn't take over ownership of the wreck after buying out White Star Lines years ago, so it isn't theirs either. At Lloyd's of London, one of the member firms discovered today it had been part of the original syndicate that insured the supposedly unsinkable liner. But the Derougemont firm's $50,000 loss was long ago written off and forgotten. I don't think that the underwriters own the wreck, but uh, I doubt it's worth very much anyhow at the bottom of the ocean. As long as the Titanic remains on the bottom, none of the hard-headed businessmen in the city of London is showing much interest. But the minute there's a real prospect of salvage, there's likely to be a flood of claims. Tom Fenton, CBS News, London. Titanic. She was launched on May 31st, 1911. She was the largest, the grandest, the most luxurious vessel afloat. The newspapers called her the Wonder Ship and the Millionaire's Special. And her owners predicted the safest of transatlantic crossings when she left Southampton on her maiden voyage. Four days later, on April 14, 1912, Titanic hit an iceberg and sank. More than 1,500 passengers and crew died. The unsinkable ship had disappeared beneath two and a half miles of water, never to be seen again. Or so they thought at the time. At the southernmost tip of Cape Cod, Woods Hole, home of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution one of the USA's leading research centers into the science of the world's oceans. Ballard? Claude, how are you? Bonjour. 
heading the institution's deep submergence laboratory, Dr. Robert Ballard. I think what's really exciting is when you go down beneath the sea and you drop two, three hours to get to the bottom of the ocean and you turn on the lights and you look out your windows, you're the first human being to ever see what you're seeing. And so you don't know well, there's a thrill, there's an excitement about, gee, when I turn this corner, there's going to be a dinosaur waiting for me. <laughs> and in fact, in a way, in 1977, when we discovered these exotic animals off the Galapagos Island, it was exactly that. We entered a, a lost world, and there were worms that were 10, 12 feet tall, and you cut them, and they bleed, bled blood like humans, and clams that were a foot across, and very bizarre animals living in this oasis. So it was very much like coming upon a lost continent. And that's pretty exciting. Exciting it might have been, but submarines like this were never a truly efficient way of exploring the deep ocean floor. It's very physical. You're freezing the whole time. I mean, you start out very hot, and by the time you get down the dive, your, your teeth are chattering. You're all bundled up. It's hard on you. Uh, respiratory illnesses set in very easily. Uh, you know, it's harder and harder for a person as I get older and older to stand up at the end of the day. You know, your body is crunched up. It's, it's not ideal. In 1980, Ballard began to develop an unmanned search system as part of the U.S. Navy's deep ocean research program. Key to the system was a vehicle he called Argo. Argo carried video cameras and a sideways scanning sonar which could profile the surrounding terrain. On board Argo, he planned a small robot he called Jason, an exercise for which Ballard has adopted the term telepresence. Real telepresence should fool you into really thinking you're there. In other words, the ultimate goal, uh, being facetious, is if a shark swam by your vehicle, you might have a heart attack. Now you've really got telepresence worked out. It's where you've convinced yourself you're there and that you're in a imaginary submarine looking out of windows and we'll be in that state within the next few years those were excerpts from the 1986 television documentary titanic the nightmare and the dream which is available in full on youtube and in just a moment the top secret government backstory which was declassified that led to dr robert ballard's discovery of the titanic in the first place right after this in 2012, Dr. Robert Ballard gave a talk at his alma mater, the University of Rhode Island, about his discovery of Titanic and disclosed the top-secret military project that gave him the chance to search for Titanic. That hour-long presentation is available from the University of Rhode Island's YouTube channel, but here are some excerpts from Ballard's first-person experience, a scientific discovery that eventually led to James Cameron's blockbuster film. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Bob Ballard. Thank you. I'm, uh... Is my mic working? Can you hear? Okay, there we go. Uh, well, it's great to be here. And uh, what I'd like to do is sort of walk you through our journey in the exploration of the Titanic, sort of past, present, and some thoughts about the future. I grew up in San Diego and fell in love with the ocean. My, my passion was to be Captain Nemo. That's what I wanted to be. It was a wonderful series of coincidences that as an Army intelligence officer uh, during Vietnam, I ended up in the United States Navy. Still don't know how that happened. And I was assigned to this deep diving submarine at Woods Hole up the street in Massachusetts. 
And we began the development of this technology. It took 29 years to get us to where we are now down at the lower campus. But my first application of this technology was the search for the Titanic. Now the problem was I couldn't get anyone to fund it. You know, uh, so I went, having served in the United States Navy, I cut a deal uh, with the Navy and said, well, you know, actually, we developed your technology. The Navy sponsored the development of this technology. He says, we have a reason for developing this technology. We have some things we'd like you to do for us. And uh, it was all classified. I'd have to kill you back then, but I can tell you now because they declassified everything, but not everything but that. But my real mission uh, that summer in 1975 was not to find the Titanic. That was what I wanted to do. But my mission for the Navy, who was paying the bill, was to explore two submarines that we lost during the Cold War, the Thresher and the Scorpion. And both of these nuclear submarines went down with all hands. And in the case of the Scorpion, actually went down uh, with nuclear weapons. We don't like leaving those things around. And so my job was to actually track down and map these submarines and locate those nuclear weapons. But we didn't want the Soviets to know that we were doing this. We didn't want to say, just follow us and we'll lead you to some of our weapon systems. And so the Titanic became the classified cover. Now the funny thing was the Pentagon was furious when I found the Titanic because they said, no, you weren't supposed to find it. You were supposed to just talk about finding it. And uh, that was quite a day in the Pentagon when I discovered the Titanic and the E-ring was buzzing with that discovery. But I did learn something very important uh, about the Thresher and the Scorpion that led me to finding the Titanic. And that was that both of these submarines tragically imploded on their way down. Once they passed their collapse step, they went off like bombs. And all of this debris came throwing out of both submarines. But instead of landing straight down in a, in a circle on the bottom, the heavy objects like the nuclear reactors or the forward torpedo room or whatever, that went straight down because it was so heavy. But lighter material was carried by the current and led to a tremendous long debris trail. And that gave me the idea because see, the previous, when we did this, the, the research on the Titanic, all of us, there were, I was the fourth attempt to find the Titanic. There were three other groups, actually three other groups four other times that went out to search for the Titanic. And we all had the same database. We, we all knew the story of the Titanic sinking. And we all went into the literature and we all looked at all of the California and the Titanic and the Carpathian. And we, all of us looked at this database and to give you a sense of scale, that's about 10 miles right there. So that's 10, 20, 30, 40 miles. You know, that's a big piece of real estate. Also, not only was there a lot of uncertainty, no one believed that the Titanic sank where it said it sank. When it sank, as you know, it, send out, it first sent out its uh, uh, come-quick distress signal, but it was the first to ever send out an SOS. But it gave that location, and you can see why, all the ships came to that location because that was what they reported to where they were. None of us ever believed that the Titanic was here because it hit the first iceberg it ran into. So we all believe that it sank on the eastern side of the ice field. And it was actually the Carpathia 
that became the critical piece of, well, there are two critical pieces of information in figuring out where the Titanic went down. Number one was the Carpathia. The Carpathia had actually crossed, it was going the opposite direction that night. It had left New York and it was on its way to England when it received the distress call and it turned and headed towards the reported position but encountered the lifeboats here. That was a critical piece of information. The other critical piece of information was the ship that didn't do anything, the California that sat on the horizon and did not respond to the Titanic's distress calls. But what we got from its logbook was the drift of the current that night on a bearing of 170 at a speed of 0.7 knots. So we got the bearing of the Labrador current and its speed, and that became critical in our hunt. And I'll explain that to you in a second. But this was basically the search area that all of us had, 100 square miles with the lifeboats coming here. So that was the search area of the Titanic. The problem was, running through the search area was a submarine canyon. So we had a deep canyon running through it, so it's like losing it in the Grand Canyon. It's a very different search strategy than out in a parking lot. So now we had a, a, a possibility the Titanic could be hiding in a canyon. Now the traditional way to search for anything was to do what we call side scan sonar. Okay, and the idea of a side scan sonar, think of it as if you were mowing the lawn. A side scan sonar looks out to the left, looks out to the right, and it goes along and it mows along. So think of that as this is my blade of my sonar. And then I turn around and I overlap my tires and I just mow the lawn. Back and forth, back and forth until there's every blade of grass is cut. And the problem is, is when you introduce a canyon, you have to do tighter lines because there could be a shadow zone here. The Titanic could be hiding up against the wall of the canyon, not seen by the sonar, so it would have to come in with another one tighter in, which makes it even more lawn mowing. So instead of mowing 100% of the grass, you have to mow 150% of the grass. So it becomes a very laborious search pattern. Now our partner in this discovery were the French. They actually were supposed to find the Titanic. When I teamed up with the, with the French, I knew that previous searchers had 60 days to find the Titanic. And I knew that by the time I finished my military operations, I would only have 12 days. So I only had 12 days when my competition had 60. So I invited the French to help me find it. And they were supposed to find it and I was supposed to film it. And so they had one of the, again, one of these side scan sonars and they went out and they began mowing the lawn. Now, the reason I'm standing here tonight talking about the discovery of the Titanic is because on the first line, the French went south and the wind and seas pushed their ship slightly to the south. And they missed the Titanic on their first line by 200 meters. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, and then they naturally mowed along and never got back to that little sliver. That's where the Titanic ended up. Whoa, I'm jumping forward a little. So, so they did a lot of work, but then when they didn't find it, we got really nervous. We thought, well, my gosh. So we enlarged the search box and now it became 150 square miles with half of it done.
But we, they had 60 days to make that. We had 12 days. And so I had to come up with this other strategy. And that strategy was instead of looking for the ship, I would assume that the Titanic broke in half, which was a gamble because Walter Lord's book, A Night to Remember, had it sinking in all one, in one piece. But an eyewitness said it broke in half, Jack Thayer. And I went with him because it, it fit what I needed to break in half. So I, I, I gambled. And I said, well, if, if the Titanic broke in half, it would have done the same thing the Thresher and Scorpion done is all this stuff would have come out. The boilers would have gone straight down. The bow would have gone. But all this other stuff would have gone trailing away. And so instead of looking for the Titanic, I looked for its trail. It's as if I was photographing a deer in the winter and it's hiding in the woods. You look for its footprints in the snow. And we went slicing through and sure enough, on our ninth, we were running out of the, on our ninth run, we came in on the debris field. And this was the same place that the, uh, the convoy routes during World War II, years later, and they sunk a lot of ships, the Germans did. So we actually expected to find other things. So when we came in on this debris field, we didn't know. But then we came over the boiler. And we had a picture of that boiler on the wall. And we knew we had it. And then we walked it up and came in on the bow. But that year, we made a complete mosaic of the ship. And we made a complete mosaic of the ship and published it in National Geographic magazine. The full video of Dr. Robert Ballard's speech on the Titanic discovery is available on the University of Rhode Island's YouTube channel. And a few years after Titanic's discovery, it led to a documentary from Al Giddings, an underwater cinematographer who would later work hand-in-hand with James Cameron on their dives for the biggest motion picture of all time. Thank you for listening to this special archival episode of Blockbuster. <laughs>